0: This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Dustin Kendrew is a singer-songwriter. He's the lead singer of the band Thrice. And over the years, he's written worship records and served as a pastor in a local church.
1: Don't be the oak of a man in the street, yells, Storm is coming soon. The weather man says it will never rain again. By their own perspective, philosophies, one of them's just a body, green teleprompter, two piece suits. One of them's too strange and splendid for any.
2: personal stuff quite as much okay at least not like I uh, do not you do you know the enneagram at all yeah i know it well i'm five so I'm, five. I'm guarded with my I'll be a five information with a about myself yeah. um five with four yeah that's, i'm a five with a four
0: mm-hmm. i got eight arrows so you piss me off i turn into a, a real jerk wait you got what the
2: eight arrow you know the arrows you familiar with that Yeah, if you're a five you got the eight arrow yeah no but that's no that's your that's your area of integration that means you're a good leader. It can mean that, but if you, under stressful conditions, you go there, and you, so you you
0: use power to. Yeah,
2: that's true. Huh? You use power. But to, you can also go to disintegration to seven. Yeah, and then that's not good either. Then you get compulsive.
0: <laughs> the first time I took the Enneagram, I was um, I was like a super high eight, super high seven, super high four, five mm-hmm. stuff going on, and then all my they do the resourceful and non resourceful yeah. scores. So my non resourcefuls, every single one of them except for like six, was in the eighties or nineties. Like I was so stressed out and fried. Um, so do it's you, hard do you know, to even read it then. Do you know Rich and Jim? Do you, do they, yeah, like, I know Rich, yeah. Yeah. He was kind of like, We really need to talk. Like you're <laughs> 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 it's like everybody right now, everybody in this organization is stressed out, but man, you are we really need to talk.
2: <laughs> so anyway. oh man. When did you you start playing music? I always wanted to play guitar, but my mom made me take piano first, so I think I started that in third grade. Did that for a little bit, which was helpful in hindsight. It wasn't what I wanted to do at the time, but uh, it's such a visual instrument. Like, no note shows up in more than one place in the sense of, like, that specific note in that octave, whereas guitar, the note can be all over the place. No, I started playing guitar in junior high, just taking, like, the music class in junior high, Mm. and... I had a couple guitar lessons too, but I never really practiced much. So I just <laughs> learned by playing what I wanted to play. I was leading worship in junior high group when I could barely you know play three chords because right. no one else could play any chords. So right. how was faith part of growing up for you? Were you always Christian? I grew up in a Christian home. My pops wasn't a Christian until I was maybe ten, I think. The l- real short version of faith story is I was a kid who thought I had all the answers, the answers to the questions in Sunday school and Mm. whatever. And then as I got older, really was skeptical, not in a harsh way, but just like, I want to know what I believe and why. And so really researched a lot Mm. of that and found what I thought were good answers. And early 20s, I kind of just got rocked by realizing I didn't know everything and couldn't know everything. And Mm. that freaked me out which seems like a dumb thing to freak you out, but it <laughs> freaked me out. Came out of that really humbled and understanding I think, faith a bit more. That it wasn't about certainty and it was really a decision in some way to place trust in someone or something for good reason. Mm. Yeah. Was there
0: something that sort of catalyzed like, that sense of like, because that's sort of like that crisis of... Certainty versus uncertainty. Was there something that kind what of catalyzed of? the crisis? Yeah, what catalyzed Yeah,
2: of really it had to do with understanding what scripture is or what I believed it to be, which is funny because I'm actually uh, in the process of really re-examining that right now as well in a, in a different way and at a different level. But yeah, so I got kind of thrown by kind of growing up being told like, hey, this is what... Uh, specifically like Genesis would be about, but i was like, this doesn't square with anything else I see in the world or, this shouldn't be at odds with, you know, if God's created everything, this shouldn't be at odds. And and so something's screwy and it just threw me for a loop. So I I didn't, I didn't not believe in God or Jesus at that time. I was just kind of hands up in the air on a lot of stuff. So at that point it was really freaked me out. And then kind of the place I'm at now I'm, I'm, Really thinking through a lot of the same things, but it's not freaking me out. I feel kind of a lot of the stuff I've gone through. I, I have a strong belief in God's goodness and grace, and in and through the person of Jesus. And but as far as a lot of other stuff, I'm much less sure of things than I've ever been. And I think in a pretty healthy way. There's
1: a pine wall for sitting. On a limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on It seems to hustle the leaves and the colors all around Now first he sings and then he goes And what it means, it's hard to know
0: Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. On today's show, my guest is Dustin Kinsrew. We talk about being a Christian on tour with bands like NoFX, about his time at Mars Hill, about making music, and about finding your calling and sticking to it even when pressures would call you other places. Our conversation was recorded backstage before one of his shows, so be forewarned, there's a little bit of background noise. Stay with us. When did music go from playing in the youth group to like playing with bands? Was the church first and then playing outside later or?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was just kind of playing in there, doing whatever. And then I was trying to start a band probably in the beginning of high school, really. Just playing with some friends, screwing around and at some point kind of had a band start and then that fell apart. And then me and Tepe... now in thrice we're like we're really gonna do this we're gonna find like two more people who are like want to make it happen and like do this you know whatever that means and so that was the beginning of thrice i was yeah i was mm, i was a senior in high school i guess we were really we were kind of starting i remember writing lyrics and stuff that were on the first Thrice stuff when i was 17. Mm -hmm. wow uh almost 20 years ago right how old are you? Yeah, yeah, thanks, bro. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, that's I mean, a monument, man. It like, is. That's great. You
0: guys are playing together 20 years, like, well, yeah, so it'll yeah, be coming said. up
2: next year, will be 20 years, and we'll be putting out another album next year. So, yeah, so that was uh, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> talk to me about those early days with Thrice, maybe not the early, early days, but like when you guys kind of broke
2: through. What were some of those milestones along the way for you guys as a band? I mean, it was pretty gradual. It wasn't super slow, but it wasn't the kind of overnight thing that happens with a lot of uh, bands. And it was really good for us to put in time and work through the different stages. Made us really appreciate wherever we were at. So we did the whole trying to tour in your general region. So we'd be going out to Vegas and Arizona and up the coast a bit, San Francisco, San Diego, trying to just get around as much as we could you know you're losing money because you're paying for gas and you're you know right. whatever just you're trying to do it and you know at that point there's no sharing of files or anything so you'd make demo cds or whatever i guess pretty early on we had we made that first ep pretty early I think we'd only been playing at all together for three months. <laughs> we had to write songs because we got a show. We were booked to play. So that was the uh, the driving force there. So yeah, so we were doing that. Then we made uh, full length with help of some guys at the record store worked at. Hopeless picked that up, uh, or subsidy. And we got yeah. more like semi-national tours lined up. And finally had to kind of drop out of whatever else we're doing, like full-time jobs or school or whatever, and just go for it and right. tour, tour a bunch. And then we were just touring a ton. How long was it between, like, we're starting a band to you were able to do it full-time or it was necessary to do it full-time? I was a year and a half into college, so it was probably Two and a half years, I guess. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, if you're gonna try to do this, you gotta go for it. Yeah. And then it just kept slowly building from there. So the record we put out with hopeless. At that point, it was, you know, good numbers for an indie label, and it and it got some attention with majors. So we ended up signing with Island. Artist Ambulance was definitely the kind of peak of record sales-wise, you know, mm-hmm. where we were. What year was that? It was 2003, mm. though, like, as far as fan base, like, I think we're stronger now by far than we were then, but mm-hmm. that was kind of just streaming the hype of that. what was happening at that yeah. time.
0: Because you guys had to ride through, like, it was like 06, when record sales really tanked for everybody and streaming yeah, so took over. It was
2: hard to really judge a lot in those years, like, I don't yeah. know, is this good or bad, like, right. <laughs> how much is... Is, is this just reflecting whatever? So, uh, yeah. I mean, it's still that way to a certain degree. But yeah, so then we, at that point, we you know, made a couple records on our own, like self-produced kind of stuff. And then mm-hmm. we ended up signing with Vagrant later and we've been with them for probably 10 years or something. So it kind of had this steady rise and then it's been kind of just hanging out there. We took a break for a couple of years. This new record's done really well and been received really well. We've had a blast bi- so... Yeah, it's a great, record thanks, for man. sure. Talk to me a little bit about your writing process with thrice specifically. Or let's start with thrice and then you, we can go to solo because I imagine there's a lot of similarities. I, I generally start with music, thrice is almost always starts with music, it's very democratic. So we're all kind of bringing ideas mm-hmm. and then kind of grabbing each other's ideas and adding to them and changing them. And really, thrice is defined by you know whatever comes out of the furnace of four people, you know, right. trying to. To make something it's for people who really have pretty different styles and like of, of music that they dig in a lot. I mean, there's a lot of overlap, but there's a lot that's like, yeah, that's kind of your thing. This is right, right, you know. And so that's it's fun and it's challenging, but in a good way. So then I'm writing lyrics afterwards and generally really trying to let them... I mean, this is something that's grown over time, like early on, not so much in place, but I really try to let the music inform how I write lyrics.
0: It's not like you come to the song and go, I have an idea. I want to say this.
2: Yeah, because I I feel like the music itself is kind of already telling a, a proto story. It has a movement. It has a mood. Uh, has its own dynamics and to work within those, like to try to complement those, I think can be a lot more powerful. So, you know, it's something outside yourself to, to be bouncing off of. And to me, that really helps for inspiration. Um, yeah. rather, I, I don't work well in a vacuum.
1: I'm a-
0: talked about this. We've talked about this before. You're fairly I mean I remember asking you about one of your songs
2: and I was like, "Are you writing about this?" And you were kind of like, "I don't know." Well, the older the song, the less right. The less I'll be like immediately connected with whatever I was meaning at the time, I'm sure. I definitely have very specific things that I'm saying mm-hmm. and meaning generally, but I try to them in a way that there's levels of kind of depth that you can enter in with it or i think a lot of what you get out of a song is what you bring into it Mm -hmm. uh, or any piece of art and so you have to leave room for that in some sense uh, i think to really have a, a powerful interaction with you know, whoever's listening to, or looking at, or experiencing that art. But yeah, I, I'm for me, I'm I'm very careful in particular in how I write lyrics. So if I look back at older ones, I, I, it's definitely fuzzier. Like you know, I can pick up what I was getting at, but I don't connect to it as much now. And mm-hmm. um, it's been a weird thing to think about lately. Like I didn't. I took a song off the set list the other day because while I, I think the thrust of the song something that I believe in in the current kind of climate of things I felt like it could be taken too far in a way that i, I don't mm. think is helpful so it's a song called an exile there's this idea of it's kind of inspired by uh c.s lewis has a quote saying you know talking about that there's a, a satisfaction for any desire and if i said something if i find in myself a desire which has no satisfaction in this world then right. the conclusion would be that i'm made for another world um uh, just this idea that he he was constantly getting at that there was something behind Everything he would have these glimpses, uh, of what he called joy, but it was a very specific kind of longing feeling for him that something it was a pointer to something beyond what he was actually able to to see or experience <laughs> in uh, in this life. Um, so the song is, is playing with that a bit and, and kind of using some biblical imagery of you know a, a city that endures, and um, and I think that's helpful, um, but it can be very much overly grabbed by Christians as like a. Like everything that becomes overly eschatological, like where the here and now doesn't really matter. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I definitely don't want to communicate that, yeah. so I don't know. It's weird to, to context can change, you know, how, how yeah. something is seen or interpreted. Or, and I think for myself too, I, I, I think that I err far less in that direction now mm-hmm. and would have written the song somewhat differently if I wrote it now. So, so it's like
0: you've shifted as well since yes, you wrote the yeah, song, yeah, like, definitely, and less
2: comfortable with kind of. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a weird thing and you've got to kind of get used to it when you're making art is like you're going to, or saying anything really, like you're going to say something and then you're going to disagree with yourself later on. And uh, Emerson has this really great uh, essay on self-reliance, which I really like a lot of. He says like, saying harsh words today whatever you think today basically He's saying like you could disagree with yourself tomorrow it doesn't matter like yes. so say what you think then too the best party says uh, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds And i think that's something that people are really afraid of is inconsistency like well i, I thought this yesterday i don't i don't want to change my mind then i'll look foolish right <laughs> and without change though you there's no growth i mean that's you literally cannot grow without changing so uh, a lot of that's to do with being learning to be humble enough to be like yeah that was dumb what what i said last year or yeah
0: springsteen when he was on the river tour he was playing he's playing all the songs off that record and there's several of them that kind of have this theme of like telling off your dad you know when you go out I saw him on the tour, and I can't remember which song it was, but it was one of those. And he was kind of talking about it beforehand and talking about this, like you know, being older, looking back. He's like, I look at it, back at it now, and I, I probably should have been a little easier on the old man, <laughs> you know, just because you see it, you see it so differently yeah. from from the different spot. I'm curious, like your guy takes faith real seriously, and. You're in thrice, like you're in a big band, like you're in, you're in the rock and roll world. You're a rock star, right? No, but okay. <laughs> but I mean, you've done, you've done big tours. You're on, you were on Island Records, you're on Vagrant Records now, like not a place that's necessarily teeming with evangelical Christians. Um, what's that been
2: like? It's been good. It's much better than, you know, when I started the band, It was... Young and dumb, I wanted to have a Christian band, and uh, mm. it was, you know, good intentions, but there was a whole So lot... I, you wanted it to be a Christian band? Yeah, initially, and God had different plans for it. So, I, I mean, a few years later, I would have looked back at that and still look back at it, and I, I think that was a very misguided notion for me to have uh, for a variety of reasons, but in the larger sense of that, I think Christian subcultures uh, are very unhelpful in general. And it comes from, a, I guess, a way of understanding the world and the church's place in the world in a very different way than I would see now. But the interesting thing has been just trying to be honest about where I'm at at any given time and write music that would hopefully be pretty universal, where I'm writing about things that I care about and hopefully in a way that's human. You know, like, it's not just, uh, I mean, if your beliefs can't resonate with, with like, humanity, like, and that doesn't mean everyone agrees on everything all the time, but there has to be ways that it ties deeply into the way all people experience life. So those are the the things that I'm trying to get at when I'm writing. And so I'm coming from it at times with a pretty high level of specificity on one hand, but also, you know, trying to really make it accessible for someone who does not share that specificity at all.
0: More on sort of like a personal level, like have there been like awkward moments? I mean, because in in a lot of contexts today, uh, like evangelical Christians are we're bigots, we're living in fantasies so and all that kind of cultural pressure. like have you experienced that at all?
2: Not a ton, and I think the reason is the people I've interacted with I've really cared for and about, and even if I disagree with them, generally, we've been able to have really good discussions about things and I mean I think <laughs> I think the only major stuff has been from uh, fat Mike from No effects who, you know, Fat Mike will be Fat Mike and say whatever is <laughs> on his mind at the time. And so we would have these really good discussions on Warped Tour and then he'd get up on stage the next day and just trash thrice right. and, you know, say we didn't believe in dinosaurs. And we, I just, just, I mean, just totally off base. And I'd be like, Mike, I, I, thought, we were, like, I thought we were cool. cool. Like we're having, <laughs> really having good discussions, whatever. But it's like, it's just not connecting for, for him. You know, there hasn't been a ton of it, I think, because of the way that I've handled both the art and personal relationships. It helps your cause a ton that you do really good work. I know you probably don't want to be like, well, you have to be, you have to be good at what you do, but that helps your cause a ton. You well, guys it helps really in the sense that it doesn't feel, I think, to a lot of people, myself included, like a lot of any Christian subculture feels like a money grab or an easy play or, you know, whatever. Like, And that's not always the case. But, you know, it, this whole idea of like, oh, this band sounds like a Christian version of this band. It's right. like, that sucks. And that's going to rub people, you know, the wrong way. If you're just a great band and you happen to be Christians, that's a very different thing right. to people on the outside of that. So, yeah, there's not a lot of, there's not as much baggage I mean, a Christian band, even for the people in the band, that brings a whole lot of baggage to their life. Like, I've seen it just make people feel, people in the band feel super weird. And, like, how do I, am I supposed to function? This is putting this weird thing on me. And yeah, yeah. a lot of Christians are are just assholes. And it, it, (laughs) that's why people don't like you. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) and, it, you know, we're very quick to be like, oh, I'm being persecuted. It's like, no, you're you're not. Like, you're yep. bringing this on yourself. You know, and sometimes you're going to get packed in with someone else. But if you're actually, you know, loving people well, like, it diffuses a whole lot of that. It's very easy to put labels on someone that you don't know or don't like. But once someone's actually, like, a friend, a kind person to you, like, they have a face and a lot of those issues don't quite matter so much. I think a lot of backlash comes from an arrogance or a feeling of moral superiority that a lot of christians carry around with them whether it's their personal life or the issues that they care about and i would just encourage people that you can care deeply about issues but the way that you communicate those things has to be loving or i would say
1: that it's not christian there's something dark inside of me there is a ghost in this machine and There's a jet jagged hole That twists and rips through my soul Like the roots of some old wretched tree There's something dark inside of me There's something haunting on my love And there's nothing good I'm thinking of Still I'm yielded and groomed Gliding into the room Saying so There's
2: something dark inside me. You know, if you've just got your answer set for everything, you're not interacting with actual humans who have differing opinions on this, who have real emotional responses to things that you would do well to try to get in their shoes and understand what those things feel like. It doesn't have to change what you think about that issue, but it will definitely change the way you approach talking yeah. about we're working forward some issue when it comes
0: back to some of that, that certainty stuff too like if you lighten up on the certainty mm-hmm. piece not necessarily even about your own beliefs but there's a kind of convictional certainty that keeps you from being willing to even listen to anything that differs from your
2: yeah the way you say well around. especially because that kind of certainty I think is brittle Mm-hmm. And so it's scary because it feels brittle. It feels like if I listen to this, it could right. crack my thing, you know, right. and break my thing, shatter this thing. there I mean there's yeah, there's some truth to not holding certain things quite entirely.
1: There's something dark inside of me. I need someone to set me free So I call out your name She seems so far away Any way who could save one like me
0: There's something dark inside me. The the life of an artist, generally speaking, takes a lot of sacrifice. You know, like you're gone a lot. Those early years, you're like, you're grinding it out on the road and bad gigs and bad money and all that kind of stuff. What do you feel like? How do you kind of reckon with your sense of calling as an artist and the sacrifices that it demands? Does your faith have any role in shaping that or in shaping why you, why you make the sacrifices you make for it?
2: I don't know, I've probably had pretty changing views on that over time. At this point, I'd say it's really clear to me that this is something that I'm just supposed to be doing. and something I'm gifted to do, something I love doing. And I'm trying to really prioritize being able to do it in a healthy way. That makes sense for my family, and you know. So we're trying to do shorter tours. We're trying to space those out better. It's easy to to not, you know, to be like, oh well. There's this opportunity. There's this opportunity, and I, I definitely I think been guilty of in the past over prioritizing those opportunities or, or whatever. And you know, it's it's hard because you're balancing. You know, it's oppor- opportunity also. You know, generally equals like financial support to sure. to take care of my family. And So that, that becomes a really weird thing because you're like, do I take care of my family or do I take care of my family? <laughs> right. And so it's a hard, hard thing to balance. But communication is, is key, just making sure everyone's on the same page.
0: Dustin left the road in 2012 to take a position as a pastor at Mars Hill Church. He was first at a campus in Orange County, California, but he eventually moved to Seattle, Washington, to serve at the same campus as the church's lead pastor, Mark Driscoll. I won't rehearse all that happened here, except to say that the church imploded when concerns were raised about Driscoll. Concerns about abuse of authority, financial impropriety, plagiarism, and an expensive scandal that involved manipulating book sales numbers in order to get his book on the New York Times bestseller list, all of which was funded by the church. Dustin left in 2014, announcing his resignation in a public statement that called out the lack of accountability and the abusive behavior of the church's executive elders. He wrote, Our pastors, who are on the ground with you, who know you, who care for you, who pray for you, and in whom you trust, these men have essentially no voice and no vote in what happens with your church as a whole, and the leadership is actively trying to limit the voice that they do have. If your pastors had a voice and a vote, do you not think that the last year would have looked different? Do you not think that they would have done something? While the problem with lack of transparency is huge, the problems with our broken view of eldership and our broken bylaws are more foundational problems. You left the road for a few years, worked as a pastor. How was working as a pastor, like the shepherding work and... And here I'm thinking, like, the positive sides of of that work. Because, I I mean, obviously that was probably a mixed bag of experiences.
2: I grew in a lot of ways in kind of a a role of leadership over other leaders. And so definitely had to, like, learn how to do some of that better than I I was. It stretched me, but for me, it also, coming out of it, I, I realized, like, that's not what I was built for.
0: Yeah, thats the question I was gonna say is like, <laughs> how did that square with overall your sense of calling? It wasn't like, oh man, like I should be doing this.
2: No, I really realized I, I had a sense of calling in it and in a slightly more <laughs> ideal uh, situation than I was in. There's a lot of rad people there working on music stuff, and it would have, it could have been something really, really cool. There was some cool stuff that happened, but it, without a bunch of roadblocks, it, it could have been really cool. And I, what I really was mostly uh, interested in was helping to take some of those people and, and their natural gifts and help them sharpen those things by being like, "Oh man, this is so strong, with this thing over here, like, I think you can make this better." I, I have a pretty critical eye for some of that stuff, so. That was what was exciting to me is, is taking really cool things that were already happening i felt like one aspect of it could just be shifted and the whole thing would be so much stronger so i like doing that but I, I just didn't get to do as much of that as i yeah. As I liked, and I and I also really wanted to be writing a lot, which I didn't get to do much of either. And mm. so that's realized that's really where a lot of my passion and talent is in is in the craft of of writing. And yeah, so I'm I'm still interested in trying to share that in uh, any variety of ways. But as far as kind of a bureaucratic role, it's not not my favorite. And I you know even the environment for trying to shepherd people there was at least mildly toxic <laughs> at all times. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard.
0: Do you feel like you've had the time and the space to kind of recover from that? I mean, I imagine walking out of it. It's not like you walk away going, Here's the lessons I learned.
2: I mean, there's a lot of good in my soul that came from it in the sense mm. that definitely has humbled me and been kind of a lot of a background impetus to kind of a winnowing of my faith in the sense that there was a bunch of other stuff that had to fall away and a couple things that remained that became stronger and I've really come to see kind of the the heavy certainty that a lot of people have about all sorts of things that they believe uh, is really unhealthy for themselves for people around them you know we we get really stuck on these secondary or even tertiary things that just bring a lot of division and condemnation and all sorts of stuff so I feel kind of lighter (laughs) coming out of all of it and freer in a lot of ways but it was it was rough. It was oh. good. Yeah. So it's been, I don't know, two and a half years or something. But yeah. The first year back was real, real bad. It was yeah. like, not, not good.
0: Well, I think when you're so close, I mean, I had a lot of friends there. I've had a lot of friends. I mean, there's this there's this spate of pastors roughly that age, big churches, celebrity culture attached to it where these guys are these guys are out or the church implodes or whatever you see this cultural phenomenon that's happening over and over again and people walk away from it in many ways really damaged Mm -hmm. what did you do how did you crawl out
2: i just kind of was was there for a bit i don't know if you've listened to mike erie's podcast at all it's called vox he he has a church in uh, california i've known him for i don't know probably 15 years now we been in contact and stuff but he's a great dude and doing some kind of really interesting stuff and may has this podcast that he's just kind of pissing everyone off all the time just <laughs> just pushing people's buttons in, in a really good way he did a episode a little while ago i think it was something called on spiritual development which sounded really boring to me but i uh, listened to it, and it was actually fantastic and he's, he's talking about there was a psychologist in the 70s or something talking about levels of development of spirituality not christian just Right. Human, and it's fascinating putting kind of some framework to some stuff I'd gone through. But level two, in this is kind of you're attached to the system in a sense, like you're like, I need help, and you see, so you find oh, I found this the system, this belief, this whatever that, yeah. and that's really good for you. And you're and then but you you end up what brought this up in my head is each of the levels you can't try to progress past, you progress past basically through. Catastrophes and stuff. Huh. So, and you can apply it to different ways, different parts of your life. And, you know, you're kind of in different levels on different things. But Mars Hill was really, in certain ways, I would have been past this level two, but Mars Hill was a very level two place as far as like its systems were the best, its whatever yeah. was the best. And so it's just constantly trying to get you to buy in on this. Like, this is the really, real way to do this. So, coming out of that it was just like, blue, like, uh, I have, and so level three is this space of being really skeptical of everything. And each of the levels, I guess, is, is scary to the levels below it. So, like, if you are in level three, right. people are like, "Oh my gosh, you're just in trouble. You're you're not doing good." Whatever. In reality, you're you're kind of just in this next phase of this, and eventually moving to level four is you realize that there was something true and good behind all the level two stuff but the but the the systems the structures of it are meaningless almost like but you're willing to engage with them seeing like there's there's something in it there so like those are people who in in a christian context would you know engage in the the life of the church but put almost zero value on the things that a lot of people are really hung up on like i love jesus I love these people, even though they're a total mess. And right. I'm here. I'm serving, loving. Like I'm not surprised that, that yeah. all of these problems <laughs> that are going right. on or whatever. No.
0: the the power of institutions right like you're a great example of this here you're a guy who you have this music career it's by all measures as far as I could see from the outside like you've got this kind of thriving music career you're kind of a great example of the kind of things you'd want to point to the church to and go hey here's somebody who's doing good cultural influencing work and all of this and somehow you get involved in the world of of Mars Hill, and i see this in other churches with other people. You get involved in the life of like these mega church organizations, and it's like, no, the real work is mm-hmm. here. The real job, you know, what you really want to be is be a pastor because that's that's what actually matters. And it, it didn't ha- it doesn't happen just to you; it happens to almost anybody who comes in the doors of the church. Like you'd be better off if you were one of us, right? Like, mm-hmm. did you? I mean, maybe maybe that's not accurate to your experience. No, but I, I,
2: I think that's. I mean, even at the the church I'm at right now, which is a yeah. great place, and it's been super, you know, patient with us, kind of recovering from a lot of stuff. And, but the pastor there was wanting me to kind of step into a little more stuff. I mean, I mean, after a lot of letting me just be and, like, very innocently was saying, like, you know, I, I feel like, don't you think this is kind of like what you want, like, your legacy to be more? And I, I had to be like you know, I get what you're saying, but I totally disagree in the sense that, like, I think what I'm doing is really important. I think what I'm doing is is something that I'm really supposed to be doing. And it's no less valuable than doing something explicitly in the church in whatever way. You know, he totally got it and and nuanced what he was trying to get at. But like, I think even in a really healthy place, like that thought exists. uh, And I think it's dangerous in the sense that it it separates the, the life of the church from the life of the world in a yeah. A false way. Yeah, I mean, that
0: that brings me to one of the questions I always like to ask, which is like, what do you hope? If you were to have a legacy, if somebody were to look back and go, well, here's what Dustin Kendrew's life was and what it meant, particularly through
2: your work. What do you hope that is? Like, do you hope to move the cultural needle? I, what's interesting is I also probably could have gave you some really great answer for that at some point in the past. I think less and less about that now. Not in a a flippant way, but I I think having an overly inflated view of like what you're trying to or supposed to be doing can make you a head case and actually detract from like what you just would be doing if you were doing what you were gifted at, what you love doing. And so I really think that what's naturally flowing from a healthy person pursuing their their art or their love, whatever it doesn't be art, you know. Just doing that thing well and, and loving people in that is powerful. And I don't know, I, I think Christians have a tendency to vastly overestimate their importance in God's plan. Go, going back to, well, you know, I was saying I was reading uh, the Capon book on the parables. And yeah. uh, he's just hammering on this idea that what Jesus is really trying to get at in these first set of parables is that the kingdom is always at work the kingdom will bring forth whatever fruits it will on its own with no help from anything else despite attacks despite people trying to help it along like it just it will do its thing all the metaphors are like talking about something that that simply will continue its process until it's complete and we're constantly trying to find our place in like well how do I make it Happen. <laughs> and, right. Uh, right. I don't know. I, I think it, it makes you neurotic and miss the ways that God's actually working in the world and has been, which is much broader than I think we can easily. Define it
0: well, and it's liberating when you think about it that way, right? Mm. Like it, it frees you up to actually go. I mean, it's one of the things he talks about in between noon and three. He says, like, one of the reasons why we're terrified of grace is that grace sets you free. We don't know what to do with freedom. Mm. Like, we know what to do with law. We know what to do with. Yeah,
2: so I guess I would say I'm experiencing a high level of freedom in my calling right now and that's yeah. uh, uh, I've always felt before like in some way trying to justify you know what I'm doing mm. and uh, yeah I think it's kind of backwards so no, uh, I mean I don't know I had to go through a lot of things to <laughs> get to the perspective oh. that I'm at now but maybe it makes sense to someone explaining it to me so
1: first he sees and then he goes and what it means it's hard to know
0: Our show is a production of Harbor Media and the Narrativo Group. Today's episode was produced by me. It was edited by TJ Hester. It was mixed by Mark Owens. Our music today came from Dustin's solo album called Carry the Fire. Additional music by Dan Phelps. We'll be back next week with our first live episode. We recorded it just a few days ago with David Taylor, Karen Swallow Pryor, and Brett McCracken. It's a great conversation. In the meanwhile, make sure and check out our archives if you haven't already some gold buried back there. All right, thanks again. We'll see you next week.
2: Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive